The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome everyone. I hope you all had a nice holiday weekend. Um, Wow, they go so quickly. But I want to remind everyone that on every show, I remind you we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I know you also have noticed that I start a lot of the shows by saying special shout-out to Yoshiko Dart. Yoshiko, love you, thinking about you. I know you're listening. She's always listening. And we just think so highly of her. And, boy, all about signing of the ADA coming up, which brings me to our guest today. Um, Our guest is a national civil rights leader. I have known her since she's been a civil rights leader for people with disabilities, so involved fighting the fight for quality of life for all of us. She is a past liaison at the White House and is now an appointee as the executive director of the National Council on Disability, which reports to the president. Rebecca Coakley, welcome to the show. So, Rebecca, Becca, just for our listeners who may not know, could you tell them what the National Council on Disability is and also what it means to be the executive director, what you do there? Sure. Um, The National Council on Disability is a 36-year-old federal agency that advises Congress and the White House on all issues of national disability public policy. Um, Literally, on a daily basis, we could be moving from working on issues tied to Social Security reform or home and community-based services to looking at education policy um, and the upcoming reauthorization of the Higher Education Act to talking about um, issues tied to people with disabilities and voting, where currently in this country roughly 70% of polling places have one or more um, issue that makes them inaccessible to people with disabilities. We're made up of 15 presidential and congressional appointees that represent uh, that are people with disabilities, um, family members, and service providers, the majority of which, though, are people with disabilities from around the country. Um, representing all different views and perspectives and generations and then various demographic uh, diversity categories. And we have a, a robust staff of 12 here at the, at the NCD offices in Washington, D.C. Um, as the executive director, I'm responsible for the day-to-day operations of our agency, um, which can be as varied and diverse as the topics that we cover. And you put out, as you were alluding to, the special report that goes to the president. Certainly. Every year um, the council publishes our annual report to Congress, or what we refer to as our progress report, which outlines the progress that we've seen 
in terms of the achieving of the goals of the ADA. This actually, actually, this next year, our 2015 progress report, which we're in the middle of right now, is really exciting. It's actually breaking down the various goals within the Americans with Disabilities Act and doing a, a state-by-state examination of five key states, um, looking at best practice, looking at the research available, and also really thinking through future steps and future directions where we need to go next. Well, and can't people get a copy of that? Yes, it will be available on our website. We hope it will be released at our upcoming July meeting, which is July 23rd and 24th here in Washington, D.C. Well, uh, Rebecca, as you know, we were talking about the 25th anniversary of the signing of the ADA. And as you also know, I know you're a close friend of Yoshiko. Sadly, we do not have Justin with us, but Justin Dart surely was the general with the Americans with Disabilities Act. So what I wanted to ask you, what does all this mean to you? Um, first off, I definitely would say that Justin is the general, but I would say that Yoshiko very aptly has taken his baton and ran with it um, and smacks us with it from time to time. Um, I think as somebody who grew up only meeting Justin twice before he passed away, um, I think for our generation, for the ADA generation, Yoshiko's influence um, can't be diminished. Uh, she has been at the front lines of supporting the next generation of leaders with disabilities, whether in terms of getting information out, whether in terms of engaging with groups of young people from other countries as they come to the U.S. to learn about the ADA, or, you know, to the point of I was at an event with her two weeks ago, and we were at a table with several young people with disabilities um, at a celebration for the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and I actually had to tease her because I reminded her that back in my early days, she would have looked at me if I was sitting at the table with her and told me to get up and go find four members of Congress and deliver messages to them for her, um, and that she wasn't giving them any homework uh, while we were sitting there in between the salad and the dinner course. No, so she sat back and said, okay, make them run the gamut. And so I took three young leaders with me around the room, and we went and we talked to the Attorney General, we talked to Aide Henderson, we talked to a couple other members of Congress, um, and in between the salad course and the dinner course, and they said to me, they're like, how did you learn to do this? And I said, that woman sitting next to you used to make us run the gamut for fun. Um, I said, this is nothing. You should try doing it with her. I go, I, I would come home exhausted. Um, I said, that's why I always wear comfortable shoes if I'm out with Yoshiko. Um, so I think there really is, even though so many of us grew up without having a personal relationship with Justin, in a lot of ways, she's been our general um, and is our general. You know, I grew up, I had the fortune to grow up with parents with disabilities, both with the same disability that I have. All of us are little people. And so I remember firsthand what life was like before the ADA. Um, I heard my parents talk about it over the dining room table. My dad ran a center for independent living, and my mom ran a disabled student services office at a community college. And so I remember when my mom was denied tenure because she couldn't reach more than the bottom six inches of a chalkboard. Um, uh. I remember actually when I was my son's age, when I was about four or five, hearing my parents talk over the dining room table about what elementary school I was going to go to because my dad used a wheelchair. And they wanted to make sure that he could have as much access to me as possible, um, meaning he wanted to be able to come to assemblies that I might be participating into or come to see the school play. He wanted to, you know, be able to pick me up 
and actually come into the school building if he needed to if I was sick. And that played a huge factor in how we figured out what elementary school I was going to. And I ended up switching from the elementary school in my neighborhood to one a little bit further away that actually had more accessibility features and was more open to making itself accessible to my family. So I think, you know, the ADA is a very personal thing to me, and I think it is to most people with disabilities, whether we grew up with it, whether we were part of the generation that worked for it, um, as, as those that came before us did, you know, or whether we're, you know, I look at my, I look at my son today and his ease of, of mobility, you know, being able to go places, being able to access things. When we were at the Ed Roberts campus, for instance, he loves the elevator buttons. Um, the ones that are set down at the level for wheelchair users to, to push their kick plate into um, because it, it's perfectly at Jackson's level. And so when you think about all the ways that the ADA has improved the lives of people with disabilities, um, it's, done, it's, been, it's had such a tremendous impact, and, you know, we still have so much further to go. Yes, yeah, so true. And you know that one, when you were talking about Yoshiko, I met Justin also only a few times before he passed away. And he was wonderful to talk to. But no doubt about it, it's Yoshiko that I know very well and became very close to. So for those of us that, as you said, were not at the signing of the ADA or were not leaders at that time, it is Yoshiko. You're right. It is her. Because she is, wow, the most humble woman. I don't know anyone like her. I mean, she is just a great person, period. Kind. And she's so funny. She's easily one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. She tells some of the best stories of anybody I've ever met. No kidding. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm going to remember that when I'm talking to her. And, hey, everyone, I assume you know this, but Yoshiko Dart uh, is the widow, the survivor, the wife of the former uh, Justin Dart, uh, who, as Becca and I were talking about, was so instrumental in the ADA getting passed. I still can't believe how they used their own money and went three times, uh, you know, to every state in the United States just to get everyone together, solidarity. And, you know, too bad we don't remember how Justin could bring the disability community together. Unbelievable how he was able to do that, and we need leaders today that can do that. Um, and here you are. You are a leader in the disability communi- community, Becca, and I believe you would work on that, by the way, bringing the community together. I know you know that hasn't happened. Well, I think, you know, I think there's a number of reasons. I think one of the opportunities that we continue to have is the ability to look at what are some real policy issues that cross our community. And I think that's one of the reasons the ADA was so powerful is that, you know, I always remember the story that was told early on about um, Major Owens, uh, Congressman Major Owens, who at the time was the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and Justin talking about the ADA and the importance of both the ADA and IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, covering all people with disabilities and about how at the time they were being courted by certain groups in the disability community that wanted carve-outs to exclude certain groups or, or wanted to make sure some groups got extra or whatever it was, and that Congressman Major Owens was very deliberate in saying 
that he and Justin would not support any bill that instituted a paper bag test on the disability community. That instituted a, we will only cover these people, or these people get access to these rights and privileges. And I think it's really critical that as we talk about policy issues in our community, we look at policy issues that really do create that big tent sort of mentality that we can bring everybody together. I mean, some of the work that we do at the council that I'm really passionate about is around the civil rights of parents with disabilities. Because right now there are 37 states where as a parent with a disability, you can lose custody of your child solely on the basis of disability. And it's something that we work on on a daily basis. We get phone calls from parents around the country, parents with moms and dads and grandparents um, with physical disabilities, with intellectual and developmental disabilities, with mental health disabilities that are saying, I'm going to lose custody of my kid because the court system, my former spouse, um, social services deems me unfit because I have a disability. And that, to me, is the next step of the ADA. The ADA made it possible for people with disabilities to get to the point where they could have families. Um, And I see that generationally with how welcome and loved and accepted my kids are everywhere we go in the disability community because there aren't a lot of little kids running around. Um, Because for the generation before us, particularly the women um, and the men, I'm not discounting the men here at all, but they had to choose where they going to, could they have a family? And would they have a family or would they focus on being able to get the right to get an education, being able to get the right to get a job, being able to get the right to get out of a nursing home or an institution? And so us being able to have families, our generation being able to have families, is directly a result of all the work that the the advocates before us did. Yeah, that is so hard to believe. I mean, it's terrible, but I know that it's true about uh, children being taken from parents with disabilities. And that is why, everyone, we've got to keep fighting the fight with passion, fighting the fight. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Becca Coakley. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S., and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. 
One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than three million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back everyone. If you just joined us, we're talking to Rebecca Coakley, Executive Director of the National Council on Disability and Disability Rights Leader in this country. Uh, Becca, we've been talking about the ADA. In your opinion, first, what do you think, in your opinion, are some of the most significant accomplishments that resulted? You know, I think um, I was actually looking at this earlier today for a colleague of mine. I pulled up a photo from the 20th anniversary of the ADA. And look, it was a photo of all of the president's appointees with the president in the mural room at the White House um, in the East Wing. And I think when I look at that photo and see the fabulous diversity of that photo across race, ethnicity, religious lines, gender lines, um, disability lines, it's... That's the that's a testament to the work of the ADA. You know, in that photo we had Dylan Orr, who was the first openly transgender presidential appointee in U.S. history. We had Ari Naiman, um, who was the first autistic appointee and also the youngest appointee ever confirmed by the United States Senate. No other administration has had anything like that, has had those sorts of accomplishments. And I really do believe that that's, that's a testament to the progress made by the ADA. Um, we have uh, an administration that's so significantly much more representative of the disability community than any previously. Um, and the hope is that the next administration will be even more representative. Um, you know, because we really do believe that people are policy, that it matters who's at the table here. You know, I think, um, I think the fact that, you know, the notion that within the ADA all people with disabilities are protected that it's not a sliding scale. It's not only certain people. That's the power of the law. Like we had said earlier, that, that big tent philosophy, um, which is why the ADA Amendments Act was so important to make sure that we restored the definition of disability to include all of those uh, folks that were cut out by the Sutton cases and the discussions on mitigating measures. You know, I think when you look across the board and you see people with disabilities in jobs, and non-traditional or non outside of the disability cabbage patch of food, filth, filing, flowers, fetching, folding, friendly and festive. Um, that is the legacy of the ADA. Um, seeing young people with disabilities going to college and accessing a college education, um, regardless of, of what type of disability, and building disability as a part of the inclusive college campus experience of today. I mean, that's the legacy of the ADA. Um, you know, I'm just excited to see what happens next, what the next step is. Right. And, and you know, it is, as you just mentioned, it is 
more than just building accessibility and Braille on the elevators and video relay now today, um, all those other things that you talked about. For example, a lot of my associates, even in uh, state rehab, used to get so many people that would go to them just looking for jobs. But now the reason it keeps diminishing is that people are going directly to college, you know, to get a job. And you just see such a change that has occurred in that area. Now, for the flip side to that, what do you think are the key issues that we need to work on and accomplish over the next 25 years? You know, I think a big thing, a big piece of it is working on mental health issues um, as early as possible and working on the destigmatization of mental health disability. Um, I think there still is so much stigma even within the disability community against individuals with mental health disabilities, and we really need to move past that. We really need to be inclusive. Um, I think we see the issues on college campuses where you have students with disabilities who disclose their disability in order to get services, and the next thing they know, they're being expelled for for being a potential hazard um, when they've never demonstrated dangerous behaviors at all to that point. You know, um, I think this sort of leads into a broader conversation around how we address the inequities people with disabilities face in the justice system. Uh, You know, I think it was New York City last year expelled over a thousand preschoolers, um, and they estimated that roughly half of them had disabilities. Uh, This is a preschooler. This is a four, a three or four year old, and they're being expelled. Wow. Or suspended. Now, why was that? I mean, which, what did they use? Behavioral issues, typically. Um, you know, and I live with a four year old. Yes, he has behavioral issues. Um, does he deserve to be expelled for it? No. But, you know, I, I realize as the mother of an African American child with a disability that very likely his father and I are going to be having to fight these fights going forward. Um, you know, and I think we know that the justice system as a whole, there are huge issues in, in the justice system as it relates to people with disabilities. There was a, a gentleman in um, Fairfax County who was arrested at, at National Airport under suspicion of stealing an iPad, and he was held in jail for six weeks without a sign language interpreter. Six weeks without being able to communicate. Six weeks without yeah, being able to Yeah, that is a big problem in the, in the prisons also. Yeah. The prison system is a huge issue, yet that's where so many people with disabilities actually get their disabilities identified for the first time. No, you know, So we have, to, we have to do better. I think that's a huge piece of the work that we need to accomplish over the next 25 years. And why do you think that after 25 years we still have this problem with employment? You know, I think there's a couple of things. I think one is we need, there's a couple of things. One, I think, is so many folks with disabilities tend to go into the disability cabbage patch or the disability policy field. Um, One of the things that I noticed when I was at the White House and was doing recruitment was I couldn't find trade associations for disabled professionals. And so I think there's part of that is still the stigma of of, um, disclosing disability in the workplace. You know, I was trying to look up a, a national organization of disabled scientists. 
um, and had very little luck, or National Association of People with Disabilities working in the energy sector and really, and really struggled to find people. Um, just, and this was just on an on a attempt to find policy guidance on a couple of issues we were working on. And so I think there really is a, still this sort of stigma in the workplace, and I think one of the things that will combat that is, uh, is seeing senior leadership comfortably come out as being people with disabilities. Um, having, having more CEOs talk about the experience of living with a disability um, in such a way that it's not stigmatized throughout the corporate culture, throughout organizations. You know, I think another piece is seeing further integration of people with disabilities into other programs, whether it be AmeriCorps um, or other, pro- you know, other service-related programs so that people with disabilities have alternative means of getting job experience. And with that comes sort of the, the, you know, if you'll call it a fraternity or sorority of being part of those programs that opens a lot of doors for people. You know, I've always been interested at looking at the, the transition data of African Americans with disabilities that have gone to historically black colleges and universities. Um, because of the role of high expectations, because of both formal and informal mentoring programs, because of fraternities and sororities and other organizations on those campuses, to see if those sorts of institutionalized entities um, actually drive higher job placement rates for students with disabilities out of those colleges. You know, and I know there isn't data on that, or at least data isn't currently being collected on that, but that's actually been one of the things that I've been really interested in is, like, where it does work, why does it work? Yeah. And you know what? It's amazing you're talking about this because, as you know, with Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act, now we have affirmative action for employing people with disabilities with a 7% aspirational goal. And when this first happened, many companies said, oh, we won't have a problem because we know we already have a large number of people with disabilities working for us. And I'm thinking, oh, just wait till you try this. And sure enough, and I'm talking now about well-known multi-billion dollar companies have come back to me saying, why aren't people self-identifying? And of course, why would they if they were there all this time and already felt stigma. So that's why what, what uh, Rebecca said is so true about getting leadership from the top to self-disclose. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see, you know, Black Enterprise do an issue around the ADA anniversary highlighting African-American executives with disabilities. I'd like to see Forbes do the same thing. Um, you know, I think I think there's such an opportunity with the upcoming anniversary to use it as a means of highlighting where we've made wins or where we've made gains, and at the same time highlighting where we still need to go. And the other thing that really shocks me is when I am talking to companies and things that I would assume are like basic things of dealing with people with disabilities that a lot of people don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? That there is still fear. Oh, and definitely. of course, why would it be that 70% of people with disabilities are not even counted in the workforce? We know there's a reason. I, I do think it's ignorance. I do think it's, you know, 
lack of understanding, and fear. But guess what? There's a great way to change that. Hire people. Hire people with disabilities, and you will see, as Chris Griffin would always say, the only way we're going to change the work face of America is when you hire people. And with that, we're going to go to break. If you just joined us, we're talking to Rebecca Coakley, Executive Director of the National Council on Disability. And we come back, we'll take your questions. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the signing of the ADA on voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S., and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We're talking to Rebecca Coakley, Executive Director of the National Council on Disability. And before we go on, we were talking about something um, at break, and I should mention to you, as I was going to mention later on, but the National Council on Disability, so historic for us, they came to Pittsburgh for the first time. Um, so, I know, Rebecca, you met a lot of people, and you told me there was something you wanted to talk about. 
Definitely. Sort of building on our, our conversation before the break, Joyce, one of the things that really struck me from that meeting was the conversation that I had with Sarah Oliver Carter, who's the Senior Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion with Highmark. And we were talking about the role of women executives and, and what needs to be done to really sort of push the needle and drive a disability employment agenda and, you know, the role of mentors in our lives and being a mentor and what that means. And, and one of the things that she said that really stuck with me, and I actually wrote it down, I, I have it as a post-it note on my desk under one of my Valerie Jarrett quotes. It's another post-it note on my desk. Um, was Sarah's comment about the need to move from mentorship to sponsorship and what it means to use your leadership to open doors for those that are coming along with you and to guide and to help drive and support um, other leaders, leaders that are representative of how you want to see your community's leadership look. And I really do think that that is a critical piece for the disability community. Um, you know, and that's something that, uh, as I remarked earlier, that uh, Yoshiko Dart does exceptionally well. And, and a number of our folks and our colleagues, whether it be people like Chris Griffin or Andy Imperato, we used to always refer to it as the Andy Imperato four-foot rule, where if you were within four feet of Andy at any public event, you would meet everybody in the room. Um, and I think there really is that critical need to move from a space of conversation around mentorship, which is still obviously very valid and very important, but thinking about how we push folks towards sponsorship, towards that next level of leadership development, both as sponsorees, I guess, and as sponsors. Oh, and I agree with that. I agree 100% because so many people with disabilities, and I've talked to Becca about this before, do not realize the opportunities in corporate America and their value. And one of the things that could help change that is what she just said, sponsorship. That could make such a difference. Well, hey, Becca, here's your first question from Nancy in Tallahassee. And the question is, uh, Ms. Coakley, you are very brave. We know that you do so much in this country. My question for you is, what gave you the courage? From... For me, I think, honestly, it really came from having parents that raised me in the movement. Um, I literally rode into the disability rights movement on the back of my godmother's wheelchair at a rally um, with DREDIF and ADAPT and the World Institute on Disability when I was probably five or six years old. I remember meeting Pat Wright for the first time when I was not much older than my son, um, and the idea that disability rights is civil rights as a whole, that injustice anywhere calls for us to talk about justice everywhere. Um, you know, growing up in San Francisco during the, during the AIDS outbreak in the 80s, um, there were many times that my mom and I went to funerals for students of hers that had died, and we were the only people at the funeral. Oh. And I remember my mom saying, somebody needs to be here for them. Um, oh, my. And knowing that these, these young people and some older people had been abandoned by their families, um, had been left to die alone, and that, you know, my mom felt it was extremely important that we be there um, to send them off, to let them know that they were loved. And I think for me, actually, that's a huge piece of why I care so much about intersectionality and why I care so much about um, the broader civil rights agenda with disability rights definitely being a part of it. But, I mean, I'm very active. My, my entire family is 
in working on issues in the LGBT movement um, and working on issues in the broader the African-American civil rights movement um, because we really do have to take this revolution of empowerment global, and it's not just for disabled people. It's for everybody. And thinking through strategically what that means, and it means that you know we need to be speaking out around issues like Black Lives Matter. Um, we need to be talking about the issues of young women and young men being sexually assaulted on college campuses. Um, we need to be talking about all these issues because our people, people with disabilities, are part of that. And we need to be talking about that as, as allies. And so, you know, I think as we have these conversations about mentoring and sponsorship, one of the things that I've been blessed with and that I realized I had to seek out to be successful for what I wanted to do with my life was ally mentors and people that could teach me how to be an effective ally. You know, and I've been blessed with people like Mara Kiesling, who runs the National Center for Transgender Equality, and Sharon Lippman Hicks, who runs the National Black Justice Coalition, who are some of my biggest heroes, um, or my biggest sheroes, and people that have taught me how to be an ally and how to do that work well, um, and how to grow allies in my own work. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think growing up with parents that were very social justice-minded and talked about um, the realities of the world that we lived in. Um, they didn't shy away from it by any means. And um, here we go, Linda from Mobile, Alabama. This is really a good question, and it is, Miss um, Coakley, what do you think we're going to do in this country to see our children who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress disorder find employment? I think that's a great question, and that's a, that's a significant issue that we really need to talk about, and it really gets to the conversations around destigmatizing mental health. Um, you know, we're waiting. We, we've already heard some rumblings from our colleagues in the veterans community talking about the issues of parenting rights of veterans with disabilities, um, people losing custody of their children because they have PTSD or other mental health disabilities or traumatic brain injuries that, um, that they acquired during military service. You know, I think it it really is a shame that folks come back and have to, you know, after fighting overseas and have to fight the bureaucracy here just to get what they need. Um, you know, I, I'm very I'm very impressed with the work of the vice president um, and Dr. Biden, both of whom are so passionate about issues facing our veterans. I'm I'm very excited by the work that we're seeing Congresswoman uh, Duckworth do in Illinois um, as a veteran with a disability, as a female and as a mom veteran with a disability um, as it relates to improving the service system for our men and women in the military. I think there's so much more work to do and and a real critical piece of it is figuring out how we can work together between the broad-based disability community and obviously our, our brothers and sisters in the military and retired military. Um, because I think part of the challenge is there is so much stigma still tied to disability for men and women in the service, um, and figuring out how we combat that, how we destigmatize that, and how we work together. Because we know we've seen the path. Um, you know, we've been working in the in the disability rights field and on accessibility issues for years, and figuring out how we make those service systems, how we apply the veterans lens to those service systems I think is really critical. Yeah, and you know what? You mentioned uh, the vice president. I just want to tell everyone, 
this administration has done so much for people with disabilities. Just 503, I mean, that was 41 years ago. That was President Nixon. Never, ever a final rule with real teeth in it with enforcement. That one thing alone is like a history changer for people with disabilities. But there are so many other things, as uh, Becca mentioned. And I will also say that to not hire someone because they have PTSD is absolutely reprehensible after these men and women fought for us without even knowing us. So I am with you on Becca. Hey, Becca, we were talking about, when you were talking about Yoshiko, you were talking about young people, and I know Yoshiko is such a great advocate and, as you would say, sponsor. Um, What do you think we need to do? What investment do we need to make in our high school and college students with disability to see them move forward as leaders in our community? And I'm meaning from a young age in school. You know, I think part of it is I think um, conversations on transition need to start in kindergarten. I think and young people need to be part of those conversations as early on as possible. Um, When I was in junior high school, when I transitioned from elementary to junior high, our junior high school guidance counselor, uh, Mr. Coast, was a double amputee. And I remember going in for our our 504 plan meeting, my mom and I, and him saying to my mom, "Um, it's nice to meet you. I'm Mr. Coast. I'm the guidance counselor here. I'll be working with Rebecca. Now, why don't you go sit out in the hall? Rebecca and I are going to talk about what she's going to be doing this next year, and then we'll call you in when we're ready, and we'll roll out our plan to you. And my mom, who had been, you know, who was as progressive as they came, who was as, you know, person-centered, planning-focused as a mom could be, uh, looked at me and said, what? And he's like, yeah, just Mrs. Hare, go sit in the hall. We'll call you in when we're ready. And he said, I believe in students with disabilities driving their education and that there really is no way to sort of start this without just going cold turkey. And we'll call you in and we'll talk you through what Rebecca and I figure out and we'll get your feedback and we'll go from there. And it was extremely empowering um, to have somebody who really put my education needs first. Um, That wasn't my parent. That really helped me sort of drive where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And I think also part of the reason was when I walked into high school, I had sort of the opposite situation where my high school counselor told me, I'm sorry, kids like you don't go here. Um, You need to go to the special school. And so in some ways, I think Mr. Coast was setting me up for for, um, a later shift in expectations. But I think you really have to have those conversations as soon as possible. I think talking to young people about their disability is really important. People ask me all the time, when um, have you told your son and daughter that they're going to be little? And my response is no, because I don't remember my parents ever having a sit-down conversation with me saying, you know, Becca, you're going to be little. You're going to be little your entire life. Um, you know I remember what? my. I, why do people ask no, these and unbelievable questions? But I think, honestly, I think people ask because they don't know. I think because sometimes I've run into many cases of parents, non-disabled parents of kids with disabilities, that say, when should I tell my son or daughter that they're disabled? And I said, if you're having to ask me that question, it's too late. You need to have this conversation as early as possible. And that's where the stigma of disability really starts, is if you can't talk about it in your home among your family, how is a young person supposed to feel comfortable talking about it as it relates to their academic needs, um, as it relates to social inclusion? You know, and so I think that that's a, that's a real piece of it. 
Another piece, you know, and this sort of struck me in Pittsburgh, um, we had several young people from the local school district come and talk to us about their education experience. And they, you know, they had phenomenal feedback. They were talking about high expectations and um, learning about what accommodations they needed and feeling comfortable asking for those accommodations. And then when it came time to the question and answer period, and I asked them, okay, so in all of that, what did you learn about the history of the disability rights movement? Um, did you know who Justin Dart is? Do you know what the ADA is and, and how the ADA came to pass? And they all looked at me and they said, we know nothing about the disability rights movement, but that sounds really interesting. Can we get a book on that? I know. And it I blew know. me away had, because here was I a place. I know that sends me. That just sends me. Yeah, here was a place where we were doing things right and we were all about the, the, the school-based preparatory experience and the work-based learning pieces, which are two, po- two pieces of NCWDY's guideposts for success. But we had totally missed out talking to them about the disability rights movement. You know, and I think talking to young people about that, I remember working with young people with disabilities in Florida, and, and we referenced the vice president. Um, and in Florida, where they had a law passed requiring the teaching of disability history and awareness as a mandatory part of K-12 public education, part of the impetus for that was learning that at the time, Senator Joe Biden, um, before he was vice president, Joe Biden was a person with a disability. And in his autobiography, talks about growing up with a speech impediment and talks about the stigma of that, talks about what he would do to rehearse what he was going to say before job interviews. And it was so empowering for these young people to hear about that. It was so empowering for them to learn that Harriet Tubman had epilepsy that was likely acquired um, as a result of brain injuries Mm -hmm. during her time on the Underground Railroad, Mm -hmm. or to learn that Fannie Lou Hamer, who's one of the leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, was involuntarily sterilized in her 20s, in her late teens, early 20s, because she had polio. So when she decided she, want, she and her husband wanted to have children, they couldn't have kids because the OBGYN she saw felt that people like her, who were African-American and disabled, shouldn't have children. And so he tied her tubes without her consent. And so there's real power in those stories that can be used to empower young people um, but it's important that we don't lose the focus on that value. And that's why I think projects like what Alice Wong is doing in California with the Disability Visibility Project, getting people with disabilities to record their stories using the StoryCorps app for your phone, is so important because those stories are important. Yes. You know, finding that, ways that for... Paul Longmore said in uh, his, one of his books, he said, we are such a big part of history and yet we're not in the history books. Oh, yeah. Or we're there. Just just as you said, who is Justin Dar? Go to most high school students, and they would have no idea. Definitely. So, Becca, here you are at NCD, and I'm sure you will go on to even greater things, but what do you want your legacy at NCD to be? You know, I think for me... um, the thing that I've loved the most, the thing that's driven me the most in the work that we've done at the council um, over the last two-plus years has been driving the broader civil rights agenda within disability rights, um, whether it be working on the parenting issue crossing 37 states, whether it be supplying recommendations to the White House Task Force on 21st Century Policing, um, 
working with the White House to convene the first ever African American Disability History event um, a couple of years ago, and last year's LGBT Disability History event. I think really working to broaden the discussion that says disability rights is not just about white dudes in wheelchairs. Um, disability rights history is American history, and it belongs to Americans with disabilities, and it belongs to all Americans. Um, but being able to really highlight the role that, highlight the beautiful diversity of our community and how that can drive a public policy agenda. Um, I think some of that was lost after the signing of the ADA and, and seeing less significant work being done with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, and for me, that's the work that drives me, is how can we, as the disability rights movement, weigh in as good allies to our brothers and sisters in the transgender movement, in the broader LGBTQIA movement? How can we be talking about issues of, um, of, tribal, of individuals living on tribal lands and, and the Native American community? that we know has, you know, young men between 18 and 25 have a 50% suicide rate. Um, there's huge issues of mental health in tribal communities. And how are we talking about that? Why aren't we talking about it? How can we engage on that? And how can we, be, how can we engage respectfully on that? And I think that's a big piece of it. I think sometimes we're so quick as a community to say, yes, yes, but our issues matter too that we don't realize that a lot of times we're taking the spotlight off of something that really is important and flashing it on us versus saying, how can we weigh in as allies? How can we weigh in and say, you know, we need to be engaged in this conversation on police violence because we know it is disproportionately affecting black women with disabilities, and those are our people. Um, so not saying disabled people matter too, but saying we're here we stand in solidarity, and how can we support this conversation? Um, and I think that's, that's a real critical piece because I think as we're asking the civil rights groups to weigh in on issues that we care about, it's important for us to be a good partner too. That is so right. Yes, especially since we're all part of those communities. Definitely. And people seem to forget that. Well, Becca, you, have, you are so smart and you are so good. And you are so courageous. You have to have had a role model. And I'm thinking I know what you're going to say, but I'm still going to ask you. For our listeners, because I ask almost everyone this question, who was your role model? Who is your role model? You know, obviously, Yoshiko is a huge influence on me and has been ever since the you know, first time I met her. Um, somebody else I'm going to mention is Kaite Davidson. Um, Kaite was the co-founder of Disability Solidarity, which was a project designed to empower and engage people with disabilities, representing a diverse array of racial, ethnic, gender, gender identity, and religious communities. Um, he passed away in December, and I don't think any of us that knew Kaite have been the same since. Um, he was amazing. He spoke of love in a way that I have never heard anybody other than Justin Dart speak about. Um, he was a friend. He was both a mentee and a mentor of mine, um, and I miss him every day. I think one of the things that was, was really striking to, I know myself and, and my, my two sisters, Claudia Gordon and, and Taryn Williams and, and now Maria Town, um, was at his, at his funeral service out here in Washington. Um, we ended up being the oldest people in the room. 
um, that wow. weren't affiliated with the university that he was at, that he attended. And for us, it really signaled um, a disappointing sort of coming-of-age moment, I guess, if you, if you will. But the need for us to do more to cultivate voices like Kaite. Um, you know, I think um, his partner, Talila Lewis, his best friend, Allie Cannington, the two of them are rock stars and world changers. And the work that they're doing on making the disability justice space into one that's inclusive of everybody, into one that's not afraid of pointing at the elephants in the room and saying, you know, this is, this is not something we should be afraid talking about. If anything, we should engage even deeper in talking about. I mean, those two blow my mind every day in the work that they're doing. Um, you know, and so I think it's important to not only think about, obviously, you know, those that are have come before us as, as role models and, and mentors and friends, but also those that are coming along with us. You know, the other person, the last person I'll say, because I always, you know, give her a shout-out every chance I can, is the phenomenal Valerie Jarrett. Um, as I mentioned before, I have a post-it note on my desk with a Valerie Jarrett quote that says, when you break glass ceilings, you're going to get a minor scrape by a shard or two from the glass. And I think that's such a powerful message, especially for women in leadership. Um, and from my time working at the White House, working with her and getting to ask her questions and pick her brain and, and see how she would approach issues um, was, a, was a master's class in leadership and executive leadership. And I'm so thankful for um, the time to get to work with her and the, and the mentorship and sponsorship she provided me over the years. Oh, I agree with you. She is absolutely phenomenal, wonderful, and so passionate about the rights of people with disabilities. So, Becca, if you had to give me one example of what, so far, you are the proudest of in your accomplishments, what would it be? There are two. One's four years old and named Jackson Cecil, and the other one's one and a half and named Kaya Rose. Um, my kids are my greatest accomplishment. They yeah. are the highlight of my day. They are why I fight as hard as I do. Um, honestly, right now, if I could be home playing with them, right now I would. Um, they are everything, and they are a reminder to me of, yeah, of the work that's come before them and the work that needs to continue to be done so that, you know, one of the things that struck me in all this conversation on, on police violence is the multiple repeated deaths of young African-American men with and without disabilities. Um, but some colleagues I was working with, Reverend Yearwood from the Hip Hop Caucus, said we need to be focused on implementing change now, but knowing that we won't see change until 2025. Um, and in 2025, my son will be 14 years old. And a 14-year-old Jackson Coakley will be looked at very differently than a 4-year-old Jackson Coakley, mm-hmm. um, especially by law enforcement. And mm-hmm. so it's critical as we, as we talk about the change we want to implement, we obviously be thinking about the present, but also keep our eyes on the future. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree, and I'm not surprised with your answer. So what message do you want to leave with our listeners today, Becca? Um, the message I will leave with our listeners today comes from a colleague of mine who does some phenomenal work on, on civil rights mobilization and, and cross-coalition building. 
And with all the protests going on around the country on every topic imaginable, you see people waving signs that say, I can't believe we still have to fight for these, this issue. And those signs have become really sort of viral. And as my friend Tanya would remind me, we always have to and will always have to fight for our people because nobody is ever going to give us a damn thing, least of all power. And so our fight is only as good as the people in the struggle. Um, so we really need to be thinking about who we have at the table, how we bring people together, and how we work collectively to create the kind of world we want to see going forward. Wow, that is a great message and a powerful message. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Becca. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you, everybody. All right, we end a quote every show from someone that has impacted so many others. And how fitting today that it is. I resent having to justify my son's rights as if those rights were a privilege, said Sandy Perino. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.